Welcome to Inclusion at Work, where we show the value and ability of people with disabilities. I'm Larry Rothstein. Today's guest is Stephanie Thomas, entrepreneur, voice actor, teacher, author, and mentor. Welcome, Stephanie. Nice to see you again. Yes, nice to see you as well, Larry. How are you? Good. I've uh, had a new hip put in since we last spoke, so and I'm walking around like a... Uh, Champ, uh, actually, uh, a week and a half ago, I was walking so fast, I had to stop myself. Whoa, whoa slow down. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Trying to finally get some rest. While I was waiting for this, I turned on some of my favorite songs for musicals because I like to learn them for karaoke. So that oh. whenever I go to karaoke, it doesn't, you know, they're like, oh, she just sang this. No, I've been practicing this. <laughs> So what, I, what songs were you listening to? Some from The Greatest Showman. And then I was singing oh. Nat King Cole's uh, Merry Christmas. I stopped singing years ago, but that's all on my list for 2022 to just get back to it because it makes me happy. Me too. I keep vowing to do that. I, I think I told you I, years ago, I took a singing lessons from an opera singer. She was very high on me. <laughs> it's like it changed my entire life. And I wanted to be a rocker. And she wanted me to be an opera singer. But opera singer. Ah, interesting. We have an alliance with the Berkeley School of Music. They have adults up to 85, 90 who are singing away. You know, So there's always time. Yeah, there's always time. One of the things that most people don't know, I had a vocal scholarship, but I never learned to fully read music. I always sang by ear. So we were singing double Bach formations in several different languages, and I just memorized everything. The last look that I uh, put on the carpet, I had to work with the seamstress to make it work for a wheelchair user. And we started on the Saturday. He had it done by Tuesday. The premiere was Wednesday. And he doesn't sew with a pattern. One of the most amazing pieces that she's worn so far. That's a total gift. I mean, it's beyond yeah. what the rest of us can do, even if like in your case, you can do it by ear. Because I had a natural talent. And so yeah. I didn't develop it the way that I wanted to, but I've never wanted to be like a professional singer. I did like to sing inspirational music, jazz, gospel, stuff like that. But I, I never wanted to make a career of it. Like that was not my thing. Can you tell us a little bit about the company you founded called Curatable, why you started it and what you do? Yeah. So here's the thing that is very interesting. 2022 actually marks 30 years since the time that I started following clothing trends for people with disabilities. And ironically, but it's only been since 2018 that I turned Curatable into an actual business. And this year, I'm very excited because I'm transitioning curatable from a service-led business of actually styling people with disabilities and consulting brands into a company that partners with fashion brands that are interested in authentically designing for and engaging with people within the disability community. And because we're mission-driven, it's really cool because I'm going to use my award-winning disability fashion styling system to actually lower the barrier of entry for companies that are interested in design using AI technology. And we're going to create this SaaS-based platform to really give companies 
an opportunity to do something that many companies seem to be a bit risk averse. They're like, "Ah, I want to do it, but I don't quite know how. Curatable is really going to be their partner in that. And I'm excited because it is more of a product than actual just service-based. Can you tell me more about what you mean by styling? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good question. So most people think of disabilities and they say, and I used to advocate really ferociously for adaptive clothing, knowing all the while that the future of adaptive clothing is human-centered design and universal design. So right now what we have is a lot of performative, although well-meaning um, efforts of the fashion industry to engage with fashion customers with disabilities who have different types of body styles, like someone that's a little person, someone who lives with dwarfism, all, you know, there are 200 different types of dwarfism, someone who may have a seated body type, who may or may not be an ambulatory wheelchair user, someone who just uses a crutch instead of ambulating independently. So with that, since there's so few clothing options in the stores, what I do as a stylist exclusively for people with disabilities is I make sure that they are able to find clothing that honors their body types. So a stylist is someone that helps people take different types of garments and garment silhouettes and match those garment silhouettes, in my case, to make sure that it is accessible, smart for their health and medically safe. And then I also make sure that it's fashionable, that they love it and that it is something that works well for their lifestyle and their body type. And I trademarked that in 2004. And so that is the proprietary information that will be the heartbeat of the new software. How did you get this idea? Where did it come from? Was it your own experiences or of friends that you suddenly decided to, I think, switch from where you were to founding a company with this kind of mission? Before I even thought about it, I am a congenital amputee born missing digits on my, my right hand and feet. And it was when I was in college that I was actually introduced to the idea of clothing for people with disabilities, something I'd never really thought about because my issue is not really clothing, it's footwear. So when I was introduced to it while participating in the Miss America pageant system, uh, I, I was blown away that there were so few beautiful options. And my natural inclination was not to go back and see the history of it. If I had, a, had, had I done that, I would have seen that there was a functional fashion movement in the 1950s and 60s. But my inclination was, how can I help now? How can I solve this problem now? And that's when I started, you know, talking to other people with disabilities. And that's really, that's really what I did for at least the first two decades. I wanted to talk to people and figure out what were your needs? What was missing? Because I kept saying, you need clothing designed specifically for your body from anyone. And they were like, no. I was like, what do you mean, no? Yeah, that's a yes. They're like, basically what we want is to have a shopping experience with our family and friends. We want to be able to, at that time, go into a brick and mortar store. This was, you know, pre-e-com in the way that we use it now. They wanted to go into brick and mortar stores and be able to shop with their family and friends. So the long and short of it is what really transitioned me was after trademarking my disability fashion styling system, um, a couple of years down the road from then, I was shopping for my cat, just buying cat food. And I saw all of these coats in the store. It was like 2006, I think it was, when clothing for pets was becoming so popular. And it just made me mad. I had 
the ability, if I were a wheelchair user to enter the store, but there would have been no clothing in the store and still is very little today for a seated body type. But a, but a person that's a pet parent could come in the store, buy functional clothing for various body types for pets. And that's when I really got serious about let's make a difference. I went back, I got uh, training, uh, disability studies training through the uh, state of Virginia. They had the partners in policymaking, which you know trained us to be lobbyists and community activists. I went back to get a second graduate degree. This graduate degree was in fashion journalism. And I still at that point wasn't really sure how to solve the problem, but I was user-centered. I was focused on the needs of people with disabilities. I started websites, I stopped websites. I'd start this, I'd stop that. But it's really when I learned that people would better understand what I'm doing if they could see what I'm doing. That really was the roadmap to Curatable as we know it today. Did any of this come from your own personal frustrations? You, you talked about footwear. As you know, my father sold women's shoes. I can't imagine he ever thought about a, a woman that would come in that would need a shoe adapted for that foot, even though theoretically he could have done it because he worked yeah. with the factories, but it would they would have never entered the store. So did you have a similar experience in, as you were growing up? I had an experience when I was really, really little. And I have a photo that kind of captured this moment. This person was necessarily malicious, you know, but when he was taking my photo, he stopped. And I just remember this so clearly. I can't see the face anymore, but I can see the body walking towards me and moving my hand to kind of cover where my thumb was in no. order for me. And then he, I remember specifically these words, that's better. Wow. And, and in the photo, I have, you know, I'm a tiny little girl with this scowl on my face because I didn't know how to communicate with language at that point. But I understood that he basically just told me there was something wrong with me. Yeah. And I don't think that I think in the 1970s, in his mind, he probably was thinking, oh, this will this will make the parents happier or she'll feel better if no one can see this. But if I had my hand where it was showing, I had no clue and it didn't obviously bother me. Now, as an adult, what I found is whenever I would go in to try on shoes, I never really paid attention to it, but the, the people that worked at the stores taught me to be ashamed of myself. They really? taught me to feel shame when I would take off my shoe to try on other shoes. So I didn't notice it until they were looking and frowning or walking by or afraid to, to bend down. This was the days when they used to help you really put on your shoe a lot, the right. customer service, and they would, you know, you had to measure your foot. And it was, that's when they kind of gave me the message that there was something wrong with me. And I think that today there's so little training that happens for people that work in retail. I think people with disabilities Disabilities. Well, I know because I shop with them all the time as a stylist, but they still experience that. And it's because people are just unaware. Yeah, I mean, it's a particular kind of prejudice that people with disabilities face. You're an African-American woman and part Native American. And, you know, there's yeah. this kind of systematic legal discrimination that is in 
its own way, much more overt. It triggers off a kind of uh, otherness. And, you know, the photographer probably did think he was helping your parents or helping you, but mm-hmm. it's all from his perspective of what help means. Right. And, and that's not something that happens in every culture. And many um, indigenous subcultures, the idea of disability didn't exist because if someone happened to be blind or happened to, or if something happened to them where they lost the use of one arm, it was just like, oh, okay, then you'll do this. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like now you are deficient. It was just that this is the way now you will utilize your skills this way. And if you were like me born with, you know, like I'm born, they would just say, well, then the spirit within you was not born to do such and such and such, do what you're able to do. And whatever that would be, that's what you would do. So this is really tied to capitalism, our unique version of capitalism in the States, which is, which has a sordid history, as you know. I love capitalists that didn't want to work for their capital, but that's a whole nother conversation. But yeah, it's a unique version of capitalism that really equates equates the the value of a person to their ability to earn. Take the ugly laws that were actually put in place two years after the Civil War. And they wanted to make sure it was a beggar's law, but they wanted, you know, from from the research uh, in this wonderful book called The Ugly Laws, this, it, they just had this idea of, they wanted to create this idea of the ideal American. And so anyone that basically didn't fit into that would be othered. You know, we talk about vigilantism today, that was happening then as well with the idea of someone could say that you were unsightly, you could be fined or jailed or institutionalized because someone thought that you were, be it because you were an amputee, be it because you had a disability, you could be a former enslaved human and someone could say you are unsightly and you could be, have your rights taken away from you. You could be arrested. I I, I read about those. I was like thunderstruck. I couldn't imagine that literally uh, people with disabilities weren't, uh, and some of the major cities weren't allowed out after night. You know, they were supposed to stay in their house and come out. Maybe they were allowed out at night and maybe had to stay in their house during the day. So how does somebody get in touch with you? And when they get in touch with you, what do you do for somebody that contacts you? That's a really good question. I'm in transition now. I'm very honored to say that Curatable uh, won won a position in the Battery Incubator uh, in 2021, fall 2021. And we were one of, out of 600 companies, startups, Curatable was one of two companies that were female-led. And then the other companies, uh, I think it was a total of 15 of us, So there were two companies that were led by women and I was the only black female founder in the battery. And so now we're really working to solve the problem. And you ask me why I do this. At the core of everything that I do, the mission is to eradicate negative perceptions of disability. And fashion choice is a huge part of that because what happens when you become an inmate, when you go to jail, they take away your choice of dress. What happens when you become a person that is put in a specific hospital? They remove your choice of dress, the way that you're able to express yourself. So self-expression, self-esteem, 
builds up self-efficacy. So this is why I do what I do. And for me, I just feel like uh, Curatable is becoming more of a product-based company. And if someone were to reach out to me now and they were saying, hey, I would really love to know more about styling. Since I don't have the time to style each individual person, what I'm starting to do is I'm working on a new series that I will just share some of my favorite brands or things that are out because what people really need is help shopping. They don't know how to find clothing that works for their body type. And so when I asked my clients, what was the greatest asset to working with me besides the help that I give clients on the red carpet? Because right now I really focus on helping people with disabilities in Hollywood because it's so visually driven. It matters what you look like. If I can help them help themselves and begin to change how they're viewed in those rooms while networking on the carpets, then that can change culture, which will help everyone. So what I'm doing for everyone else is I'm, I have shopping reels on curatable.com, which is C-U-R, the number eight, A-B-L-E.com. And then they can go on and they can look at clothing choices for someone that's standing, someone that's seated body type, a little person, someone who ambulates standing up. I'll probably even put, you know, some children's things on there. And I really want to do more with helping people connect to some of the brands that I would suggest and use myself. What are some of those brands? I know that Tommy Hilfinger, I think, actually had a line of clothing for people with disabilities. And there's been some awareness among some of the brands. I don't really follow it, but there's definitely targets had uh, children in wheelchair part of their ads. and Yeah, so here's my issue with some of that. Let's, let's start with Tommy, which I have respect for the way that they've transitioned since 2015, which is when they worked with Runway of Dreams to help launch the children's line. What really changed is when they launched the adult line. But what the pinnacle was for me when they did Tommy by Zendaya and they partnered with Zendaya and Luxury Law, her stylist, and creative director. He's amazing. They're both amazing. And they created a collection that included adaptive selections. And one of my clients who is now starring in HBO Max's new hit show, The Sex Lives of College Girls, which was just signed to season two, Lauren Spencer, she contacted me and she said, hey, you know what? We are actually um, invited to Tommy. I said, well, I can't go, but you can go and let's get you. I said, what are they sending you to wear? Because they always send models something to wear. So she was a disabled model in the audience at Tommy by Zendaya wearing a, an adaptive version of what you saw on the runway. What we see now, Larry, is we see a lot of performative, well-meaning, I'm not putting people down. People are trying to have representation, but do we need that kind of representation when now we have digital fashion where people can just send a photo to Dress X and see their bodies in designer clothing? We don't need for actual designers to do representation, we need collections. We need them to value people with disabilities as fashion customers. And let me tell you what's happening online at Tommy. Online, we see Zendaya above the fold, you know, on the website, 
we see a curvy model above the fold on the website. And then we see Lauren above the fold on the website. So you have curvy model, you have uh, Tommy, the, the, the person that he's partnered with, all in Tommy by Zendaya. And that's the stuff that people want to see. That's what I really love about Tommy. Yes, they've done, done adaptive, adaptive clothing, but Izzy Camilleri did adaptive clothing in 2009. She was a premier designer, is a premier design, Canadian designer. And she was like our Tommy Hilfiger. She did her work in Canada and was designing for people with disabilities in 2009. What Tommy has done was perfected the storytelling, um, provided some great basics. The marketing is brilliant because I can go to Tommy.com and when I click on women's, I'll see curvy, adaptive, blah, blah, blah. You know, everything's just all yeah. there together. And that's the way that it should be, but it's not. My issue I have with Target, which I understand that Target has a small committed team, and I'm really grateful for the work that they're doing. However, I do want to state because it's only a small team, which means they're probably not a ton of buy-in from the top. It's almost like someone's allowing it to happen. They don't have the machine behind them, right? So I asked, I saw an image of Jillian McCardo, a model uh, that's been around for a long time. She, she was also a fashion editor, really, really great person. And I saw a picture of Jillian. I was like, oh, do you have the adaptive jeans in the store? And the person at the store said, we don't really sell that. Come to find out, Target does sell adaptive clothing online and they don't sell it in the stores. But for there to be a disconnect between the person working in the store and for me to know more than that person, that's the problem. When you don't have buy-in from the C-suite, <clears throat> you have no forward movement. Yeah, I, that's something I've noticed uh, in the last year and a half since uh, the murder of George Floyd. There has been a surge in African-American representation in commercials, uh, mm -hmm. but there's been almost no surge and there's been a surge in diversity efforts, but people with disabilities are lagging behind the other groups within the diversity umbrella. And it, it's obvious where you see the money is going right now. And right. Uh, you're absolutely and, right. Yeah. And that's because it's, again, this awareness, you know, where, you know, it's it such a tragedy. It triggered off a lot of social uh, unrest which triggered off a response and the people with disabilities in a strange way, maybe farther behind now than they were before, because now other groups are ahead of them and getting representation and they're being forgotten. Literally. I, I saw a, uh, 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 Harvard university has made a big, uh, diversity effort in the last year. And there was an annual report. And there was a number of groups, uh, the, a lot was being done. And the only thing done for students with disabilities on campus was celebration of the ADA's anniversary. And it was sort of shocking. I mean, the other people are getting all this. Well, that's because nothing for us without us. Yeah, so one of the things I know you're doing is mentoring other people with disabilities to help them start businesses. 
you know, I, I think it's one struggle to get corporations, you know, which as you said, there's many layers and different politics there, but there's something empowering about thinking you can start a business and you've done that and now you're helping other people. So what exactly are you doing with these other people? And can you give us an example? Yeah, I'll be happy to. I want to step back and, and really comment on what you said. In Hollywood, there is a, I see people that I've worked with, models that I've worked with, I see them all over TV. I see them in Walmart commercials. I see them everywhere. But in California, there is an incentive, financial incentive to include people with disabilities. In films, the number of people with disabilities increasing, but it's increasing because of the, a diversity initiative by initiative by the you know, the Academy, they're saying, you know, you're not even eligible for an Oscar if you do not put these certain things in place to have more inclusivity. I, I want to also say that people with disabilities have always innovated. So the work that I do as a mentor is I basically just remind them of what's possible. You know, I remind them that it is possible to have a business and it's possible to do your own thing. Like they're, this idea that you that you're not able to do it doesn't happen. And a lot of the mentoring I do is offline. It's with people that have been curators, ambassadors for my company, and it's people that I meet online. I don't do a lot of mentoring in the space of about my work as a stylist yet, because what I found is that I, I was not always coming across honest brokers. There were people with very little experience that were saying that we should partner together, which what they meant was, let me piggyback on all of the work that you've done. And my problem with that is that's fine, but you're not going to move the industry forward by being a sloppy copy of me. I want to work with people that are going to help innovate and move the industry forward. So I just do it by relationship building. And if they need something, I support them. I share what they're doing online. It's a it's a really you know organic relationship. There's nothing. There's there's kind of no system to it. I just I see people. I believe in them. We build an organic relationship. If they're innovating in some way, I help them out. Like if there's someone that I'm working with and I know that they can't afford my services outright, what I try to do is. I've allowed myself a certain number of pro bono jobs per year. And what I do is the pro bono is not completely free, but it's so much of a discount that would allow them to work with me. And these are the actors and influencers and, and business owners um, that I'm doing that for because I want them to succeed. Yeah, there's, there's a point that you raised, which is that No Limits Media, the sponsor of Inclusion at Work, proposes that when people without disabilities really interact with people with disabilities in a very intense way, in an open-hearted way, that spurs creativity, that you start to really see approaches to problems that uh, you may have not been able to solve in your company or different uh, innovative ideas that come from the perspective of people with disabilities. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm dyslexic. 
there's a lot of dyslexic entrepreneurs. I found out apparently 35% of entrepreneurs are dyslexic, what is called invisible disabilities, but it's because they look at the world differently because they don't spell very well, or in some cases they don't read very well. Billy Bob Thornton, for example, uh, admitted that for years he used to fake reading scripts when he was auditioning. He would hold the script, but he could barely read. But what he would do is memorize the entire script, and it really probably made him a better actor. So wow. it's interesting that you're finding that in, in your work with these people who are trying to start businesses. I know you've also done some voice acting. Tell me a little bit about that. And that's one of my first loves. I remember being a child and wanting to do two things, be a speech pathologist and a voice actor. And I thought I'll help other people because reading was really natural for me. Thanks to my mom. She would have my brother and I read to her. Shout out to my mom that's somewhere in the house. I hope she can hear me. Moms hear you when they're there or not. Yes. <laughs> so I fell in love with it early on. I loved everything from... I love musicals and different things where there's constant storytelling. It was a pretty natural journey, but not, not a direct one. My first job in voice acting, if I could be honest, which being a traffic reporter is not voice acting, but that just tells you some a bit about how bad I was as a traffic reporter because I viewed it as a voiceover job and mm-hmm. not as a traffic reporter. I was horrible at reading maps. I'm probably not any better today. And so you know what I would do? We had to call the police. We had to listen into the police report. All I knew was I needed to sound like one. For all of the people, and I know none of them will probably hear this, I'm so sorry. My traffic reporting was so bad <laughs> because I was just trying to sound good. I was like, okay, so we're bottlenecking on the I-35 on 625. Make sure that you're going another way. You're not going to want to go that way because if you're going that way, you're going to have some trouble. This is Stephanie Thomas and I'm reporting for blah, blah, blah. It sounded amazing, but I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no idea what I was doing. That was my first uh, jump into them. But I started in VO in 97. I'm SAG after now. I'm a mostly commercial and promo voice actor. And promos I just started getting into about a year ago, which I found that it's a natural fit for my voice because my voice automatically sounds a little cleaner than a normal vocal tone. So it's very easy for me to do. How often do you do voice acting? I audition every day because you can jump in the booth. That's the beauty of it. It's my takeaway from my work with disabilities, which sometimes can be pretty heavy. So it's my chance to get in the booth and become several different people like I'm working on something for one of my, my agents, you know, she wants me to sing like a child. And I was like, Oh, I got you. And so one of the things that I used to do with my cat and he hated this song, which is probably why I love singing it to him. I created this whole character around my cat. His name was Mr. Yitty the kitty because I didn't have a cat name. So I just thought what rhymed with kitty. And so I used to always say uh, like, like he was an animated cat. And I would say, I'm Getty the Kitty, also known as Predator Boy. I'm Getty the Kitty. That's me, not you, not you, but me. I'm Getty the Kitty, also known as Predator Boy. I'm Getty the Kitty. That's me, not you, not you, but me. And so I go from commercial to animation to heartfelt. I get a lot of hospital reads 
And a lot of times my agent tells me because that comes across as a part of who I really, really am. So a lot of empathetic reads. One of the things about disabilities that people are pigeonholed immediately. Every human being has dimensions and you have multiple dimensions in the kind of things that you're doing. So I'm an arts person. That's my first love. Singing, any kind of movement from jazz to African dance to modern dance. Graham is my favorite. Alvin Ailey's my next favorite. Like any of that makes my soul sing. How did you do that with the limitations of your feet? That's, that's, I was wondering. I never thought to ever bring that up in any other interview, but that's a really good point. You know, ironically, I also love yoga and I have incredible balance. I just think one of the things that you learn in dance is your core, your core, um, your diaphragm, all of this. That's what keeps balance. And so I have incredible balance to do things and flexibility. I feel like I was, I was created to dance. Like that is a, a natural innate gift. It doesn't matter what kind of dance. It doesn't matter even the difficulty level. Even if, even if I can't perfect the like certain turns or jumps right away, I can, I can see them broken down in my mind. If I watch the feet, it's like my brain slows it down and recreates it. And I immediately get it. It's something that I had nothing to do with. But did you use uh, an adapted footwear? I dance better bare feet because I can, I can grasp the floor. When I, uh, when I do have to wear like jazz shoes or ballet shoes or something like that, and I used to teach Zumba, you do have to learn how to balance your, your feet. I mean, you, you have to learn how to balance your body. And if you use your core, that takes the weight off of your knees, that takes the weight off of your back. And that's yoga kind of helped me balance that. Right now, I, I've recently hurt my knee, but I'm still able to do yoga. It's so interesting. I don't practice it as a spiritual practice. I just practice it because it's freaking awesome. I can breathe, I can rest, I can turn my mind off. Um, but yeah. I think that I was born ironic. That's, that's what it is. It's like, she doesn't even need all those toes to dance. All right, well, we'll save those for someone else. And so that's how I came out. Oh, that's so here great. I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no Limits was involved in trying to create a film with the uh, Adapted Dance Program at the Boston Ballet for children with autism and Down syndrome. And the uh, choreographer for that, who at one time was a principal dancer at the Boston Ballet. So of course, this fantastically perfect and had to deal with these kids that he said he knew that you know you're never going to get to perfect gesture or the perfect movement but how would he choreograph for them and he said it was the greatest learning experience he had as a teacher because the joy of dance is really what it's about it's not about the perfect move because there's only a handful of people in the world who can actually do it at the level of the boston ballet any of the great ballet companies but for the rest of us, there's a joy in it. And to create a recital for these kids with their parents and grandparents and their friends and for, you know, pictures are taken and the kids get applause and then everyone comes down and dances together. To me, it was the metaphor for the kind of society that we need to create, you know, the acceptance of anybody, particularly people with disabilities, using our minds and our spirits to uh, interact with each other and come up with new ways of doing things 
and then mm-hmm. celebrating what we just did, you know, instead of throwing up barriers, instead of having excuses, instead of being sort of oblivious to 20% of the population. Yeah, I used to volunteer at a, at a dance class like that. And now that I think about it, it's where I would study dance. On the weekends, I would volunteer to be a part of their adaptive dance. And the, now the thing that I'm thinking, I wish that class had been mixed. I wished it had been mixed with just children in general, because children in general find joy in dance. And I think oftentimes it's the parents that prefer the separation because they don't want children to be bullied or made fun of. But that's just my opinion. It's what I noticed. Yeah. Some of the other principal dancers who had the kids had looked at them and then they came in and sat in and then they suddenly got up and started dancing with the kids. So oh, I know, love it. It was amazing, you know, because yeah. suddenly you had these people at different levels and, and there was so much laughter and joy in the room. So anyways, what's the future for you? What are you heading towards? That's what's so exciting about hitting a landmark of following my heart for 30 years with something that I'm passionate about. So the future is really focused. The future is to get this software out so that companies can effortlessly engage with fashion customers with disabilities, not just from design, part of the SaaS model, the subscription will include information on disability culture and encouraging people to get involved because education happens through interaction. It, 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 you can't just have an offering of clothing without getting into culture. Uh, something else that I'm really excited about, I've been working with in a writing partner and the story that I shared about the little girl, my story, having my hand covered, we've turned that into an animation and we're working on episodes for that. And then the final thing is I just, this year, I've really worked to get things off my plate so that I can enjoy my books coming out next year and really sharing those with the world. One is co-authored and that'll be published by Bloomsbury in 2020, yeah, 22, next year, December. And then the other will be out in the spring. And that's my textbook, which is more focused on the implications, the social implications of fashion and ableism. So one is on the history of dressing with disabilities and the other is on what are the social implications when we have so much ableism in the fashion industry. So um, I'm excited about 2022 and beyond because it's not, oh, 30 years and what I did in the past. This is a landmark moment. It's the time to celebrate, but the best is yet to come. Absolutely. This was great. I learned a lot more about you. Not surprising, but it was totally surprising that you were <laughs> talented. I look forward to the book and to all your continuing accomplishments. And thank you so much for taking the time with us at Inclusion at Work. Okay, and thank you. We'll talk again soon. Okay, bye, Larry. Bye-bye.